This is the Journal of American History podcast for December 2010. This is the Journal of American History podcast for the December 2010 issue. I am Khalil Gibran Muhammad, Associate Editor at the Journal and an Assistant Professor of History at Indiana University. We are delighted to welcome today Dr. Heather Ann Thompson, an Associate Professor of both African American Studies and History and an Associate Director of the Center for the Humanities at Temple University. She is the author of Who's Detroit? Politics, Labor, and Race in a Modern American City, published by Cornell University Press. She is the forthcoming author of Attica, Race, Rebellion, and the Rise of Law and Order America, published by Pantheon Press. Heather's latest article, Why Mass Incarceration Matters, Rethinking Crisis, Decline and Transformation in Postwar American History is published in the December 2010 issue of the Journal of American History. She joins us today from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Good morning, Heather. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Good morning. It's great to be here. Excellent. Listen, this is a really uh, important and timely article. I want to uh, read part from the introduction that really, I think, captures the urgency of this moment in terms of what mass incarceration means for today and how it has evolved over the past 30 years and what you argue convincingly, how it has reshaped the entire landscape of the country. You write that although 7.3 million Americans are entangled in the criminal justice system, that 10 times more Americans were imprisoned within the last decade of the 20th century than were killed during the entire Vietnam War, and nearly 200,000 more African Americans have ended up in penal institutions than in institutions of higher learning by the new millennium. That in spite of those dramatic numbers and the important changes that the criminal justice system has had on individuals, communities, and the nation, Historians have largely ignored mass incarceration of the late 20th century and have not yet begun to sort out the impact that it may have had on social, economic, and political evolution over the course of a long post-war period. Can you talk to us a little bit about both the scale of mass incarceration and the urgent need for historians to respond to it? Sure. Well, I think that the first thing to to say is that I'm not sure that most citizens, let alone scholars, have really absorbed how how large the carceral state has become in the decades, including and then following the 60s. And so I think part of the story that I really wanted to capture was just simply to identify that, to, to make clear what a massive shift in state policy and and you know penal policy specifically but but which had reverberations for state building and and many other things what a massive shift that was um, we already know that there's a lot we can gain from looking at changes in the criminal justice system when we want to understand a society more broadly and we know that because of course so many really important works in 19th century post-Civil War South history identified uh, very clearly that the response to African-American claims on freedom after the Civil War was to really change laws and to clamp down on 
mobility and speech and so forth in the in the black community, uh, resulting in uh, a large scale imprisonment of African Americans that had again very vast re- repercussions, not just on communities but on the political nature of the region. So so we know that this relationship between crime and punishment in the broader society exists, and yet we haven't, again, really begun to sort that out for for this period. I think that's a really important uh, use of the work done on the Southern criminal justice system in terms of the evolution uh, and emergence of convict leasing, of chain gangs for the purposes of controlling local African-American labor in communities across the South. And that's a really important, rich example. But it doesn't entirely flesh out how historians have spent so much time looking in that period and have paid so little attention, as you claim, on this most recent period. Is this simply a problem of time and distance? Is this topic simply too fresh for historians to uh, have really begun to to dig into the details of? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think that uh, that the issue of, of time and distance is relevant, but maybe not in the way that you suggest. I think that people have been very uncomfortable or at least reticent to draw conclusions about what the political responses were to the civil rights 60s and also to kind of really sort out what the uh, the reality that we live with today, which is not just mass incarceration in general, but a very specific mass incarceration that that is deeply racialized. I mean, you know, by, by 2006, one in nine black men uh, between 20 and 34 were imprisoned. And so I think there has been a bit of um, an uncertainty, reticence, um, discomfort with really connecting dots or sorting through what that may mean. And especially when it comes to criminal justice, I recently gave a talk on how this very post-war phenomenon plays out in the South. And one of my colleagues in Southern history said to me kind of amusingly, he said, it's very interesting, you know, people assumed that police officers in the South were uh, were racist and did not police fairly pretty much until Bull Connor retired. And then there is this assumption that uh, thereafter, the police became fair-minded and administered the law without prejudice. And so I do think that there is a, a way in which we need to historicize the post-civil rights 60s with as much vigor and as much clarity as we have the post-civil war period. What you're saying is that part of what happened in the post-war war period, and particularly after the civil rights era, was the uh, emergence of a kind of colorblind criminalization. Uh, we have the work of scholars such as Michelle Alexander, for example, that argues, she argues that we are in an age of colorblindness. And I'm curious if in uh, teasing out the distinctions and the nuances between policing in the South and the North, what you are suggesting is that there is relative commonality in terms of the policies that have that have shaped and impacted African Americans. And if that is the case, then how are we to understand the moral universe through which historians have articulated critiques of Southerners in the past? It seems that those critiques would now apply uh, to the very communities from which historians themselves uh, write. And I think that one of the things that happens when you begin to shift the view, you know, take a different look at this period and you start looking at crime and punishment, 
the the post-war landscape gets a little bit muddier and, and the northern and southern the idea for southern distinctiveness gets much more problematic for example and this is something i try to really address in the latter part of the article you know the reality is if you look at the crime and punishment policies of the post 60s period it's very difficult to lay what becomes an extremely racialized uh, was and becomes a racialized uh, policing and incarceration just on the heels or at, at the, the doorstep I should say of the the Dixiecrats or the Republicans because in fact it was the Johnson administration and with the Law Enforcement Administration Act that really creates the largest crime-fighting bureaucracy the nation had ever seen. And thanks to that really kind of liberal Democratic Party willingness to call for crime legislation, you know, billions of dollars get spent in a very short period of time on, in effect, creating the very carceral state that we now lament. And, of course, this is because liberal Democrats were as concerned about the upheaval and the disorder, quote-unquote, of the 60s as were their Republican uh, colleagues. You write, for example, that in the 35 years leading up to and including the tumultuous 1960s, the number of Americans incarcerated in federal and state prisons had increased by 52,000. Then, over the next 35 years, that number increased to 1.3 million. It would seem then, by your own accounting of the sheer turn in those policies, that the presidency of Johnson and the ascendance of the Democratic Party, its apex in the 1960s, played a critical part in what you call the punitive turn that occurred, and that that punitive turn has in fact outstripped anything in American history in terms of the criminal justice system's sheer scale and size. I think so. And I think that that's, that's what I meant when I mentioned that in order to, to really sort out what happens from the 1960s onward in American history, the story looks very uh, differently depending on what you're looking at. So if we are going to look at crime and justice policy, then our take on politics shifts pretty dramatically, I think, as does, as my article suggests, as does other assumptions that we make about the post-war period. I mean, we, we have, you know, very important and useful arguments, for example, about how, why it is that cities, which of course were, you know, quite prosperous after the Second World War and, and, and were really identified as, you know, the place in the nation where all that was you know, all excitement and, and commercial investment would take place. I mean, there's some huge decline that happens where by the 80s, you know, entire swaths of cities are decimated. And we have really good understandings of why that was, ranging from suburbanization and deindustrialization and, and all kinds of arguments. But again, if we bring back this issue, or not bring back, if we insert the issue of crime and punishment, um, I think even those stories look look quite different. So, so there's sort of the the piece I think is really a call to get us to think about the questions that we think we might have already solved uh, in a new way. I like that you reminded us of the work that has been done by Tom Segrew and Matthew Lassiter and many others in terms of pointing out the impact of deindustrialization 
and massive urbanization on the shifting landscape of urban and suburban America, what some are now calling uh, new metropolitan studies. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about what I see your article articulating, which is a third leg to this stool of change. That is that alongside deindustrialization and massive urbanization is the criminalization of urban space. Uh, can you describe what you mean by that term? Well, I think that the term is a pretty broad term to just simply capture a phenomenon that begins to happen uh, incidentally quite similarly to the way that it happened right after the Civil War across the South, which is that behaviors that citizens had long engaged in became newly criminalized. And those specific behaviors tended to be behaviors that were more in uh, urban spaces and certainly in communities of color. So, for example, things like begging or sleeping in public or things like that become newly criminalized. In my article, one of the things I try to really point out is that it happens throughout the urban space, even beginning with children. And maybe that's one of the actually the clearest places to see it is we see a criminalization of space in schools in uh, social spaces where the poor congregate, but very, very specifically also communities of color. And this is where, in particular, changes to drug laws serve to decimate urban communities. And again, we know this story. That part is not the newsflash. I mean, everyone knows that the war on drugs was pretty dramatic. Um, Some really interesting new work being done on that now by scholars. But what we haven't really sorted out is the way that that war on drugs in turn made urban communities, you know, tattered the social fabric of urban communities in ways that, um, you know, we haven't really sorted out, I think. I think there's this really powerful image of a mustached white police officer, uh, in some ways a very 70-looking person, this very heavy, thick uh, mustache, riding a uh, police officer riding on a graffiti-covered New York City subway, and he's staring anxiously at an African-American teenager, a, a young man that, that appears to be no more than 15 years old. Uh, he appears mm-hmm. to be innocent of little more than riding while being black, and yet mm-hmm. he is subject to what I think your work is pointing to is a form of racial surveillance that is happening in cities across the nation. And I'm Curious if you could talk a little bit about racial surveillance as you see it in a post-1960s urban America or a deindustrializing America in relation to citizenship. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, I've been very influenced by by your work on this question of the way in which citizenship and, and social spaces are very much racialized long before this time period. But I think one of the things that happens in the post- uh, actually, during the Saki Tseng Post, it's really during uh, the height of the civil rights movement, is a deep sense of unease on the part of primarily middle class and politician whites, but, but also, I think, working class whites, that social spaces became dangerous spaces. And the way that that was often defined was protest spaces became dangerous spaces. But very quickly, you see that the way that people felt you could get a hold of those spaces again or make those spaces less threatening 
was to police them through things like uh, new stop and frisk legislation. It's very important to realize that one of the most important cases that made it possible for police officers to stop someone and to to shake them down effectively to figure out did you might you have a weapon or might you have something illegal on your person was a 1968 Supreme Court decision, um, Terry versus Ohio. Again, a case, incidentally, and it bears mention, that had been in the works long before 1968, right? This is a case that uh, gets decided on then. And what it really meant was that now spaces like subways, for example, could, it was kind of open. You could stop just about anybody. And indeed, in one year alone in New York, more than a half a million people have, have been stopped. And the more people you stop, the more you find the person who has a small amount of marijuana or who has switchblade for their own self-protection or whatever it may be. And so very quickly, changes in laws led to the policing of space in such a way that then in turn, and I think this is really important, made those spaces seem even more dangerous. One of the things I don't really talk about so much in the article, but I think it's very important here, as schools get criminalized, Mm -hmm. Um, as police move into the schools. And again, very notably, this happens beginning in Baltimore in 1967 and in Atlanta in 1969, often on the heels of a great deal of civil rights activism within high schools. But when you start to have a really strong police presence in urban schools, that in turn makes those schools seem unsafe. And it makes them seem like very toxic spaces. For example, I don't think that we can really understand the resegregation of educational institutions that happens in the wake of the 60s that a lot of scholars are doing some fabulous work on. I think we need to think again about what does criminalizing space have to do with this resegregation. Uh, parents, white parents that want to move out of urban school districts, the language they use is a language of safety. You, you actually point out that Baltimore's uh, school force is the police force and security provided in the Baltimore system is trained precisely in the same way that uh, the beat cops are. Uh, that mm-hmm. they go into those schools uh, ostensibly in the name of public safety uh, with all the tools and resources that they would uh, on the streets or uh, in any other community. And indeed, you point out a study done by the New York Civil Liberties Union uh, that found that the sheer scale of police involved in the New York City public schools represents a police force that is the 10th largest in the country, larger than Washington, D.C.'s police force, larger than Detroit, Boston, or Las Vegas. And you also point out, and I think this is a really uh, important connection to the postbellum period that uh, really helps historians to appreciate what the stakes are for understanding criminalization and not simply crime, is that the discretionary powers of law enforcement to criminalize behavior that in a suburban school would never amount to a police action uh, in these urban schools become subject to police scrutiny. For example, fighting, which is a part of uh, prepubescent and teenage behavior, eating food in class, carrying cell phones, skipping classes, throwing temper tantrums. I mean, we begin to see the kind of remaking, as you've described uh, in this article, the remaking of the same kinds of criminalization of behavior that was described as uppity or disrespectful or in 
the instance of African-Americans actually uh, demanding to share the same space with whites would be subject to, again, a criminal justice sanction. I think that's a really powerful way in which you expose uh, this relationship between criminalization of urban schools and uh, larger anxieties about what's actually happening in those schools. Well, and and also I think it, it really shines the light on the need to really historicize crime better and what are we really talking about. Because again, when one sees, as in the case of New York, you know, more than 4,000 people employed as school safety officers, the logical conclusion for parents is, well, that would be nowhere I would want my children to go to school, right? There must be a problem. And yet, again, if we break this down a little bit and we borrow from some of the evidence available to us from people in in uh, the healthcare professions or people that actually work, for example, on drug addiction, we find that it's really out of sync with much of the data available even to law enforcement about where these problems necessarily reside. Um, uh, Michelle Alexander, you mentioned her book, The New Jim Crow. I mean, one of her really fascinating contributions is to really nail down this question of where is the, the real risk coming from when it comes to drug use or even the selling of drugs. And um, the evidence is pretty conclusive that the police are not in not policing the spaces where that problem is most prevalent. And again, not policing white kids anywhere near to the uh, proportion that they, in fact, use drugs and sell them. Um, indeed, a 2000 estimate that whites were more than a third likely to have sold illegal drugs than African-American youth. And, and the drug usage rate, much, much higher. But again, the the location of criminality in urban spaces and those urban spaces being overwhelmingly or spaces of color very quickly create a situation where all clarity with regard to what is crime versus what is criminalization disappears. And I think we as historians have really been, we have been guilty, I think, of not historicizing those moments more clearly ourselves. Just to uh, echo your point, uh, you cite in your article that white students use cocaine at seven times the rate of blacks They use crack cocaine at eight times the rate of black students and heroin at seven times the rate of African-Americans based on federal reports as recently as the year 2000. Uh, Those are really powerful numbers that fly squarely in the face of popular perceptions of uh, who's doing drugs, how those drugs are being distributed, and why there are so many people in prison, which which brings me to um, a question that I think will open up uh, into a major argument in your article about uh, the rightward turn and its origins in relation to mass incarceration. So it would seem that if on one hand the criminalization of urban space has fed a misperception about the relationship between behavior, actual behavior, and the growth of the criminal justice system, it reinforces the notion that that inner city people, particularly black and brown people, are the cause of the spike in incarceration, when in fact we see even by these numbers of drug use, which accounts for uh, the most substantial growth across state incarceration populations over the last 30 years, it would seem that this is really about which communities we look for certain kinds of behavior. And even there, it's not clear that the behavior is actually going on. 
Well, I think this is where the call to historicize crime data is really crucial because we have, I think, as a profession, as a nation, we really kind of accepted this idea that the crime rate goes through the roof in the 60s, and therefore, while the move towards a carceral state uh, and the move rightward, frankly, may be regrettable, it is understandable. In other words, people's desire for safe spaces um, is, is something to be taken seriously, and therefore, you know, who are we to say why people make the decisions that they do to, for example, embrace the Republican Party versus the Democrats because, you know, the Republican Party was more on the ball when it came to speaking to these need, these uh, fears of crime. And my own research just really belies that uh, on so many levels. I mean, first of all, uh, I think we really need to unpack the decades of the, the years of the decade of the 60s much more clearly when it comes to crime, because notably the biggest, the, the most substantial brick that is laid in the foundation that becomes the carceral state, which as I mentioned is the Law Enforcement Assistant Act, that is passed in 1965. And if you look at virtually, if you look at data from across the country, and you look specifically at what people purport to be the, be, you know, the most afraid of, which is violent crime, you have a real problem with the data. In other words, that people are much more, uh, politicians are, I argue, actually fueling fears of crime um, as much as responding to them. And so, for example, you begin to see that if you look at southern states, I mean, you know, even if you look at where George Wallace is most, you know, touting uh crime paranoia, but also not just George Wallace, and this is really important, also Lyndon Johnson as the, the nation's president, you see that, uh, for example, in, in the South, you know, the murder rate in numerous southern cities goes down between 1960 and 1967. I mean, the very period, the very crucial period that we're talking about. Um, and, and, and nationally, you know, it remains so stable. But it's so interestingly, there is indeed an uptick in crime figures, crime statistics towards the end of the 60s and certainly into the early 70s. The initial uptick, the politicians themselves are very frank about the fact that they've had to recalculate crime, they've had to rethink about how they're going to report crime, and this is so interesting in part because, and in actually no small part, because of resources newly available to urban districts, actually to all districts, because of this new Law Enforcement Assistant Act. So if you have a crime problem, you get more resources. And um, the mayor of Detroit, for example, was very frank about this. So we need to unpack what is really happening so that we can then understand what politicians are responding to versus, versus creating, I would say. Uh, just, just to echo that point uh, and to emphasize uh, the significance of it, in terms of, uh, for our listeners who don't understand how policies of incarceration cause crime rather than criminals driving the growth of prisons, I want again to, to hear you map out precisely the relationship between the need to substantiate federal dollars in law enforcement. So all of these resources come online. Uh, anyone who's done administration, I would presume, knows that if your budget increases, then if you don't spend, your budget decreases. 
Yes, exactly. And but we can we can speak even you know much more concretely about numbers. I mean, if you the the murder rate in the in the nation as a whole in 1965 was 5.5 per hundred thousand, and of course these numbers are adjusted for population. Um, and and even uh, when we are all the way to the tumultuous year of you know 1967 and 1968, I mean we're still only in you know 6.8, 7.1. But very notably that number gets higher and higher and higher for two reasons. One is, again, that there's an enormous incentive to quantify crime differently. In other words, so what might have been a burglary is a larceny or what, you know, so so particularly for crimes not, that's why murder is a very important one to look at, right? Because it's very difficult to, you're either dead or you're not. It's harder to mess with those numbers. That's why it's a very useful number to look at. But if you look Notably, the closer we get to the present, and, and more specifically, after the, the more of an incarceration boom we get, the more we move away from welfare policies, the more we effectively embrace conservative politics in the country as we march towards the 21st century, notably, the crime rate does start to go up. And so there's a number of things to unpack here. One is why does crime become a political issue to start with, and then how does it in turn kind of change the way we think about crime and count it. But then we have to look at sort of a different question, which is what, is the, what are the social effects of criminalizing space? And my own work seems to suggest that these effects are devastating and in turn create crime that otherwise would not have been committed or created, ironically, were it not for the carceral state itself, for mass incarceration itself. I agree with you that it's complex, but I also think it explains why it is absolutely imperative that historians begin to join in this conversation and to historicize the issue, because uh, left in the hands of able sociologists and really smart legal scholars, um, history is usually secondary to their analyses. And so we're missing in this conversation. I think you provide an interesting long view of even the statistical data on homicide that I'd like to hear you talk briefly about. For example, you go back to an era in American history that uh, coincided with the era of prohibition. And You point out the tremendously high murder rate uh, during that period as a period that exceeds in substantial ways the murder rate that ostensibly brought into being the justification for the age of mass incarceration. Can you talk a little bit about that long view of the statistical data itself? Well, and there's, I think there's, there's two important points there. One is that if, if you look at homicide rates over the 20th century as a whole, then you, the, the, the 60s looks very different than we had assumed that it did. I mean, the 60s becomes a low point in the 20th century with regard to crime rates. So that's number one. And in fact, it shouldn't surprise scholars that that would be so, given the fact that by, say, 19 you know, 66 and 67, not only did we have some economic prosperity, but we also had social service network. We, we were putting in place 
you know, we had in place and we're putting even more in place uh, social service networks that people benefited from tremendously that had an impact on poverty, which in turn had an impact on crime. So actually, historians should not be surprised that the crime rate in the 60s uh, looks pretty good, particularly compared to uh, the 30s um, and compared to the 20s. And so that's the one point that, that we've sort of had it wrong, I think, when it comes to how we understand the data of the 60s. But there's another point that I think your question suggests, which is that when the crime rate was in fact higher, there is a very different social understanding of the problem. And when there's an understanding that everybody's poor or that there are social circumstances and economic circumstances that create want and create social uh, despair and create crisis, that the response at that point is not to erect an enormous criminal justice state. The, the response is, is a far more forgiving uh, and much more nuanced kind of social historian, uh, social history kind of understanding of what was going on. But when we get to the, the civil rights 60s and, and, and the era thereafter, um, even when there's not an uptick in crime, the crimes that are committed are understood in a very, very different way, as is the response to them. And I will just tack on to this. It's not in, in my piece, but I think it's, I, it should have been because I think it's an important point. One can specifically see this with regard to drugs, not just because we have a turn to criminalizing drugs, which I think is deeply connected to, um, to really important historical events such as uh, the Attica Rebellion that I work on, but also it is so disconnected from the data. We now know, uh, we have had it pretty conclusively shown from a number of scientific sources, Journal of American uh, Medical Association and so forth, that the actual drug addiction rate in this country uh, is remarkably stable over time, over the entire 20th century, you know, roughly 1.3% of all Americans are addicted to drugs. Mm -hmm. So this has so little to do with the problem of drugs and so much more to do with the problems that are created by the criminalization of drugs. Now, there is one piece that we haven't talked about uh, in relation to the way that you've structured this article. You focus on the urban crisis, and uh, we've talked about the criminalization of urban space. Uh, The third section talks about America's rightward shift, and you ask us to rethink post-war liberalism in relation to what up until now has been a strong emphasis on a Southern strategy of using crime as a wedge issue uh, to grow the Republican Party and to ultimately uh, realign the entire political electoral map of the nation. What we haven't talked about and what I want to spend the remaining time considering is your focus in the middle section on the decline of the labor movement. Uh, You say that changes to the law and economy that accompanied mass incarceration ultimately change directly and indirectly the bargaining power and economic security of America's free world workforce. But what it also did was create uh, a real or had a huge impact on the economy and prisons and bodies in prisons began to have uh, economic meaning, uh, specifically, as you mentioned, convict leasing. So it occurred to me that, well, you know, is there something in this that we need to think about for the post-war period? I mean, because again, here we have a shift, right? 1954, 
35% of the you know nation's workforce is in a union by by 2008 it's only 8% i mean there's a serious decline in the labor movement's ability to represent uh workers and so what does this whole story have to do with that and and i think what i found is that it has a tremendous amount to do with it that we again are only beginning to sort out first of all it is very significant that we have a return to prison labor not just a, you know it's not just a habit that comes back there is a concerted effort on the part of business interests to change laws to once again make it possible to access the bodies that are in penal institutions and work them more cheaply than than workers in the free world could be worked. And so that was a major and significant change to the law, which in turn had an impact on the economy that I think we need to think about when we think about why is it that the labor movement declines. Again, this is not to minimize the impact of other things like the industrialization or globalization, but it's to add it to the conversation. And then the second piece that you hint at there is it isn't just that prisons become really important for people uh, for companies seeking a cheaper workforce, but prisons become profitable institutions unto themselves. So over the course of the post-war period, the carceral state becomes such a profitable entity that then in turn crime or the commission of crimes becomes very, becomes connected with profit in ways that are deeply uncomfortable and, and need to be kind of sorted through, I think. Does does this sound like one version of this based on uh, the history that you are asking us all to pay closer attention to? That is, that deindustrialization begins to uh, emerge in, say, Detroit in the 1950s. Uh, factories begin to relocate first to the suburbs and uh, in many cases eventually uh, to sunbelt regions of the country, uh, to the south and the southwest. At the same time as deindustrialization occurs, uh, communities that once depended heavily on manufacturing now find themselves uh, economically marginal. Uh, mm-hmm. And in place of that marginality, we begin to see uh, a, a kind of scramble for what is left in those communities. Simultaneously, we gradually see the uh, increase of a law enforcement presence, and particularly in the inner city communities that may share a kind of political district uh, where factories once were. But over time, as deindustrialization takes hold, new jobs emerge in the form of prisons that replace factories. Mm-hmm. And so one consequence is not the exploitation, simply the exploitation of inmates making, for example, at Conica Corporation, as you point out, uh, 35 to 40 cents an hour repairing copy machines. But in fact, the uh, corrections officers themselves become a new class of workers in the carceral state. Not a new class altogether, but a new class of work that on the scale of things had no precedent in the pre-World War II period. until those prison guards become the new service workers of an economy that no longer provides factory work for white or black workers, and that black men become, uh, in a sense, the raw materials of that new system. Yeah, I mean, and I think that 
I, I would actually even push all that just a, a little farther and say, I think that we have to ask questions that we have not yet asked. We need to sort out to what extent, for example, did these areas deindustrialize in a way that we understand them to have deindustrialized versus shifted those industrial operations into prisons? Um, or similarly with globalization. I mean, you know, it, it's very interesting that we have we have really located and, and assumed that we have fully understood the movement of jobs to sweatshops in Taiwan or maquiadoras or or in in Mexico. But 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 in fact, there's a very crucial moment at, at, towards the ends of the end of the 70s and into the 80s where you know, people are are not necessarily taking their work out of the country. They're taking it to a, a different sort of facility within the country. So, for example, Michigan prisons become one of the largest textile industries around. Does that matter to the fact that uh, workers in Kannapolis, North Carolina, who used to work for Cannon Mills, are now unemployed? I, I think so. And I think we have to start unpacking that and as you point out, we also then need to look at can prisons, do prisons, uh, create new opportunities for a different working class, and, and that is the white working class prison guards. And, and I think it does, but I think that we have also, I think in some respects, white workers have been uh, largely um, sucked into something that the data doesn't really support either. Um, those jobs are far less lucrative and, and, and fewer than they are ever promised to be. And again, if you take the broader historical perspective as opposed to looking at it just as a labor economist would or a sociologist would, it becomes clear that even the best-paying corrections jobs are nowhere near what, could have, what was expected for those same workers uh, two decades earlier as, uh, as union members in uh, a different kind of industry. So again, call for questions to be asked because uh, I think that we, we simply have made a lot of assumptions that we now need to actually probe. I think the last uh, element of this, which will tie together uh, all three components, is the consequence of large numbers of inner city residents being incarcerated in largely rural prisons. So if one consequence of that is uh, Walmart is replaced by a new correctional facility or that all there is left in town is a Walmart and a correctional facility, uh, both of which some would argue are reflections of a race to the bottom in terms of the economic position of America's uh, working class, be it white or black. You also see that the consequence of large numbers of people uh, something like 47 million Americans, you point out, had a criminal record in 2006, and that some portion of that population cannot vote means that the redistribution of political power, of voting rights, of, of, of voting power itself uh, has not really been fully interrogated by historians. Can, can you flesh out in greater detail uh, the consequences of that process and indeed how it came to be. Yes, and and I think that that's actually a great way of pulling all of these uh, points together because, and once again, reminding ourselves that, that, that part of this should not be a newsflash because paying attention to the post-Civil War period, we know that this version of this has played out before. 
Um, and that is exactly as you say. With mass incarceration, there are economic but also political consequences of this that shape many, many different questions that we seek to ask as post-war historians. If we want to understand why economic power shifts, well, we've, we've talked a little bit about that. Jobs move from inner cities to prison factories in upstate rural areas that can only employ rural residents. We've talked about that. But it's also true that with changes to the law that have newly disfranchised prisoners, and by changes to the law being new, again, we've got to go back in 1970, a very important Supreme Court decision that makes clear that disfranchisement is perfectly okay, and then thereafter, disfranchisement legislation spreads like wildfire throughout the nation, resulting in catastrophic levels of particularly the black electorate having no political power. So we need to, if we're historians interested, for example, in understanding the legacy of the civil rights movement and what happened, we need to think. We, we can't really answer that question until we consider, for example, that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was directly undermined and eroded by felon disfranchisement legislation. So we, you know, that's a piece of that story, too. And, um, and even pushing it more, more forcefully, if we want to understand the rights of the right in general, we need to understand the role of mass incarceration because while black persons were disfranchised under these new post-70 laws, their bodies were still being used for political power, again, reminiscent of the three-fifths clause. So if a prison community in upstate New York has 33% of its census population dependent on prison bodies, again, prisoner bodies, again, prisoners who cannot vote, that changes political power. And um, we have to think about that if we think about, oh, all of a sudden the nation's become more conservative. Well, has the nation become more conservative? Or have conservatives gotten more political power? And certainly some studies have suggested um, that the very presence of prison bodies has actually led to uh, resources shifting to rural conservative white communities more than they would have otherwise, such as uh, you know census-based uh, resources such as community development block grants, or let's put it even more bluntly, according to some uh, political uh, investigations, it's pretty clear that it's actually disfranchisement has actually shaped up to seven. U.S. Senate races and has actually shaped who had control in various uh, in various moments in American history after 1972. So, again, it's sort of a, a sense in which mass incarceration is maybe the the uh, hidden story, but it's clearly a story that has shaping so many of the other stories that we seek to to better understand uh, that take place after uh, after 1960. Well, Heather Thompson, it may turn out that you will bear some responsibility for uh, helping us all understand the electoral strength of the Tea Party uh, in these all too interesting <laughs> times. Uh, Heather right. Thompson is the author of Why Mass Incarceration Matters, Rethinking Crisis, Decline, and Transformation in Postwar American History. She is also the author of the forthcoming Attica, Race, Rebellion, and the Rise of Law and Order America. Thank you very much, Heather, for coming on today to talk to us on this podcast. Thank you so much. This was great. 
This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the Journal of Record in American History. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Please support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. Subscribe online at www.oah.org, and you will receive a printed copy of the journal four times a year. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Join us in March for our next program. If you have comments or questions or suggestions, please email us at jahcast at oah.org.